once again, good day to you, Gateway. I just invite you, wherever you are in this moment, to make your way on over to Mark chapter 6, where we'll spend the bulk of our time here this morning. If, if you've been tracking with us here over these past few months in the Gospel according to Mark, then you're well aware uh, that God's agent of reconciliation, this Jesus of Nazareth, that he is on the scene, that he's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand, and he's showing up with dramatic fashion in many cases. And so this drama of Jesus's gospel, it's one that unfolds along the contours of unrest and dis-ease and even disease. I mean, just this past week, we saw that those who are outcasts come to Jesus for rest. And his presence alone compels them to come. For those who are grieving and who are in desperate need, they cast their fear and desperation on Jesus. And he doesn't cast them aside, but receives them both, the outcast and the broken. They both come to Jesus. And if that's not scandalous enough that those who are considered the outsider have space with Jesus, he then speaks peace to them. And this has kind of been the well-trodden path of Jesus in the gospel, according to Mark. And yet, in contrast to that, really all the people who we'd expect to be for Jesus, to be for his ministry of reconciliation, it would be the religious folk, like the scribes and the Pharisees, the Herodians. These are, in fact, the ones who are offended by Jesus. They're the ones who come up from Jerusalem to the hill country of the Galilee, where Jesus is doing his ministry, and say that he's possessed by a demon quite an offense indeed. So whereas these people plot against Jesus, the outcasts, the scum of the earth, as the scriptures would call them, these are the ones who bow themselves before Jesus and receive his words of life and healing, because these are the ones for whom the kingdom of God exists. And just that brief recap, even within myself, I can feel this recoiling. Like this vision of Jesus's life, it chafes against the vision that we have for Jesus's life. And as we sit here today, maybe some of you have already thought like, how can this be the way of God? Certainly this, isn't, this feels upside down. To see a man who's opened himself to ridicule and slander and disdain and contempt, one who's vulnerable to all these things. And so we say in our hearts, certainly this cannot be the way. I mean, after all, if Jesus is weak, if Jesus is vulnerable, then how can he stand up against my weaknesses and my vulnerabilities? How can this be the way? And I imagine that those suspicions that rise up in our own hearts are some of the same suspicions that crept in amidst the people of Nazareth, the people that we'll meet in our passage today. So without further ado, go there with me. Let's meet these people in Mark chapter 6, verse 1. This is what we read. And he went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him, were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, 
A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could not do a mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So before we work our way on through this text, I just want to start at the end because I found myself strangely drawn to Jesus's response. That response there at the end, verse six, go ahead and look back there with me. It's, he marveled because of their unbelief. Simply put, the things that we marvel at, they're great in our eyes. Sometimes they're things of beauty. I mean, just think if you can of the account where the disciples go with Jesus to Jerusalem. And there they are in the colonnades of Solomon, like the temple courts, the whole thing, the the size of the stones, these Herodian stones that are like as big as a person. They marveled at them because they were great in their eyes. Sometimes we marvel at things of beauty like that. Sometimes it's on the opposite side of that. Like think of the day we're in today. We see the injustice of systemic oppression and we marvel at the capacity of human evil in our land, in our hearts, because it is great in our eyes. It's no different with Jesus. Jesus marvels at the Nazarene's unbelief for it is great in his eyes. Just let that sink in. That unbelief is great in Jesus' eyes. Something we're marveling at. But like, but why here? Why does Jesus marvel here, in this place, at this time, at this point in the gospel according to Mark? Well, to see that, let's just peel back the layers slowly but surely. Go with me back to the beginning, to verse 1, where, where, we, go, where we see this, that Jesus is headed home. And we just pause right there. How many of you know that feeling? That twinge of discomfort that bubbles up just when you think about returning home? It's that subtle moment where you start to weigh who you are now, who you're becoming with who you were all those years ago. Maybe those years are not too far gone, and yet nevertheless, you are weighing who you are with who you were. And you know full well that if you show up, like if you really show up, the you who you are today, that your uncle or your sister, they're bound to say that thing they always say and conflict will arise. If it's not external, then it's internal. And so you just weigh it out. Silence, conflict. What will it be when I go home? And it's not just that, is it? It's not just the weighing of who you are with who you were. It's not just the cost. It's the disconnect between who you're becoming and where you've come from. Just look down at verse 2. We read this. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, 
the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? Did you hear that? It's not just who you're becoming that creates the tension. It's also how you're remembered. For the Nazarenes, for Jesus' kinsmen, they have a vision for Jesus' life and he does not fit it any longer. See, by this point in Jesus' ministry, he's well known in the region, but whereas the surrounding region in the northern parts of Israel, of the Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth is the authoritative teacher. He's the one who encounters demons and they bow before him, he casts them out. He's the one who receives the unclean and makes them well. But in Nazareth, he's the carpenter. He's Mary's son. His identity is fixed in their mind. In Nazareth, Jesus is familiar. He's ordinary. And how could an ordinary man, a, a contractor from Nowheresville, Nazareth, be God's agent of reconciliation for the world? Certainly not. And these people, these, the Nazarenes, like the ones who arguably are the most familiar with Jesus, they seem to receive Jesus and his new reputation He's teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath after all, so it seems like they've received him. But then the question comes, where did this man get these things? And now I, I don't know if that's the inflection of the question. I'm, I'm obviously reading that into it. But that tone strikes me. Where did this man get these things? And we don't know the disposition of the hearts there in the space where Jesus is teaching, whether or not they're looking to knock Jesus down a peg or two. Mark doesn't tell us, and, and really, um, that's not given to us in the text. But we have this question, where did this man get these things? And in this one question, I see this like spirit of cynicism revealing itself in Nazareth. It's what the philosopher uh, Louise Navia, he describes as an attitude characterized by a general distrust of others' motives. A general distrust. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like the moment we're in. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him how are such mighty works done by his hands? It's as though Jesus possesses a thing in wisdom and works that he's stolen. And one, one scholar paints a picture of the scene in Mark 6, and it reshaped how I saw this scene unfolding. What he has is Jesus standing up, delivering the teaching in the synagogue. And in the midst of his teaching, Voices rise up, shout him down. They clap back at Jesus with, who is this man? Where did he get these things? Like, we know who you are, Jesus. Don't come here trying to act better than you are. And that, that picture, that image is so fitting. 
Because these people, the ones who are the most familiar with Jesus, they refuse to loose Jesus from the vision they have for his life. He's familiar. He's ordinary. Certainly this could not be the one through whom reconciliation comes. So disillusioned are Jesus's kinsmen, the Nazarenes, that in a parallel gospel account, the gospel according to Luke, Luke actually records that Jesus is driven to the cliffs by these people. So just picture this. Jesus's city, his, his really his town, his neighborhood, his family, all rise up against Jesus and his teaching which, by the way, what is Jesus' teaching? The kingdom of God is at hand. <laughs> the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand to turn and trust in the good news. That's his message. And they've risen up against that and they push him to the edge. They refuse to believe in him. Just look at that line there at the end of verse 3. It says this, This is a startling, startling line. And they took offense at him. You could translate that, that they refused to believe in him. It's shocking. Like, that they can recognize wisdom, they can recognize mighty works, but they're offended by the one in whom the wisdom and the mighty works manifest themselves. Like, These Nazarenes, they're offended by the familiarity of Jesus. They hear God's wisdom on his lips. They see his works in his hands. And yet the spirit of cynicism has blinded their eyes to the agent of God's reconciliation in their midst. And in the face of this, just look at Jesus's response in verse 4. We hear him say this, A prophet is not without honor which is a bible way of saying a prophet has honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. In other words, Jesus could say this, God's word has come to you, fam. God's word's come to you and you cannot hear it. You will not hear it. And I love how John the Evangelist, another gospel writer who's writing a biography of Jesus a little later than Mark, I love how he says it. He says that he, this is Jesus, came to his own and his own did not receive him. He goes on to say this, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But nevertheless, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. And in this moment, Jesus aligns his ministry, his proclamation of the good news of God with the ministry that have gone before him, that of the prophets. And so he aligns his ministry with the tradition of the prophets, the women and men who proclaimed God's word to God's people, those who called God's people back to covenant faithfulness, to fidelity to their God. In the Old Testament, you'll read these challenging words like in Hosea and, and other like prophets that the people of Israel were whoring after other gods, literally giving their bodies, their whole selves away. They were adulterous 
And yet God was calling them back. And yet they would reject him. They would push him away. They would set him to the edge of a cliff. This is where Jesus situates himself, as one rejected by the ones to whom he sent. And to see Jesus in all of his familiarity, I think that's normal. Like, I I want to look at these people, Jesus' kinsmen, and I want to, I just want to judge them. How could you not see it? But we too have a vision for Jesus' life, don't we? We grow up, perhaps, with a vision of Jesus as one certain thing. And then we come across another vision of Jesus, and we're trying to reconcile these two things And perhaps this one is a little edgy and it it, it ruffles the feathers of our cultural fabric and so we push this one away. Or, or, Or maybe the one that we grow up with, that's the one that ruffles our feathers of a new cultural fabric. And so we push with away that Jesus and we embrace a progressive Jesus, one who relaxes the letter of the law. Or even better, in this moment, maybe we tick up a Jesus who's bound himself to justice and the oppressed because that fits our agenda. But in the end, our allegiance is not to Jesus, it's to our agenda. See, we have a vision for Jesus's life, but Jesus has a vision for his life as well. And that's the will of the Father. Ultimately, that's the reckoning point here. So to see Jesus as the one in whom God is at work, is in some sense to reckon with how we see God's work in the world. For the Nazarenes, God's work is very specific, and it maps on to what we see in the lives of the Pharisees and the scribes of the Herodians, that God's work is to remove oppression. It's to eliminate suffering, to quell the oppressive powers of the Romans, and then to exalt the nation of Israel. But if you were to glance over at Luke chapter 4 to actually see what Jesus' vision is, the vision that he receives in the will of the Father, you hear something quite different. And quoting from the prophetic tradition, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, Jesus said this. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he drops this little line and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. See, Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus is teaching And Luke records this sermon of Jesus teaching in Nazareth. And now, whether or not these two things are what was said or not, like that's not the matter. What's the matter is to see that Jesus's vision for his life is God's vision for his life, which is one of reconciliation. So to hear God's vision for reconciliation, it confronts us with a Jesus who sees our weakness. He knows our frailty because he's fully human. And what we see there in him quoting Isaiah is is that he's saying, the Spirit of God has empowered me to be with you in your frailty and your fragility and all of that to identify fully with you in it. And so what this whole passage in Mark brings us to is this question, are we willing 
to receive Jesus on his own terms? Or are we going to hold Jesus to our vision for his life? And this isn't an arbitrary matter. Like this isn't like, well, you know, it's just semantics. No, it's not semantics. And we actually begin to see how this makes sense, how it makes a difference. Just look down to verse five there in chapter six. And we read this. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. (laughs) Okay, so the authority of Jesus is such that um, he can heal a few sick people, but he could do no mighty work there. What did Jesus expect to do when he went home? He expected to do a mighty work. Imagine what it would be like if you, who are being renewed in the image of God, you who have a vision for pursuing the presence of God and prayerfully contending that his kingdom come here in Des Moines as it is in heaven, that you would join with him in the renewal of all things. Imagine if you went back to those spaces where that's not what people know of you and you didn't hold that over and against them. But when that conflict, you know, with your uncle or your sister rose up, what if you were present like Jesus was present? What if you heard the tension in their voice? What if you actually listened like Jesus listens? Just imagine what that would look like, the mighty work that could happen in that space. When Jesus was heading home, he wanted to do a mighty work. And what what blows my mind about this one little verse is it just speaks clearly as day that there is this mysterious link between faith and healing. And Mark's not, he's not talking about mustering up faith, drumming it up with a good worship song, and then at that moment, God will act. It's, It's not an emotive or like an emotionally manipulative tactic. He's not talking about positive association. He's not talking about sending out good vibes or energies or just positive self-talk. No, not at all. What he's doing is he's talking about the power of God at work in those who receive Jesus by faith. See, the Nazarenes' unbelief, the, the word there is like apistia. It's, it's, it's like when you put an A on the front of some words, it negates it. <laughs> it gets rid of it. So the word is faith, pistis. It is no faith. Their no faith stifled the power of God. This is what Jesus marveled at. And this is when Jesus departed to other towns. Just let let that sink in. Jesus doesn't linger. He doesn't force them. He doesn't say, no, 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 I've come here to call you to myself. No, you will come to me. He honors them. This is so frustrating about Jesus. He meets them where they're at calls them to a vision of God, one one that actually is about liberty to those who are captive. He speaks to their captive hearts, and yet they will not loose Jesus from their vision for his life. A contractor from Nowheresville, Nazareth. A good teacher, a moral activist. 
a spiritual healer. They won't lose Jesus from their vision for his life. And his power then is not loosed as well. See, the, the spirit of cynicism, this general distrust, it, it's what bound God's power. It literally set limits to where God could work. And this is what Jesus marvels at because he wanted to do a mighty work there. And my prayer, like as I was working through this passage, I'm just, God, may this not be so among us. May we be people who behold the wisdom of God in the face of Jesus and receive it, who see the mighty works and say, yes, come Holy Spirit, we want more. Yes, we see you are here with us, your omnipresence, yes and amen. We want your manifest presence, God. We want this moment in culture for it to be indistinguishable that it is the Spirit of God at work through the church of God that it is his faithful presence, his peaceful presence, his restoring presence that is at work through the church. We want this. We want the mighty work. And my prayer has been, God, would this not be so among us? Would you stay among us? Would you linger with us? Would you be present to us and us to you? Don't leave. Increase our faith. my heart was strangely warmed in this moment because in a twist of irony, one of those who pushed Jesus to the edge of the cliff, Jesus' brother James, he later trusts that Jesus was and is God's agent of reconciliation. He goes on later to record these words in a letter to these churches, these Jewish followers of Jesus. He goes on to say, who is wise and understanding among you? And I just imagine he has a vision of Jesus. He has that moment in his hometown, beholding wisdom in the face of Jesus, seen afresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And the wisdom is this. This is the wisdom of Jesus. It is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. In other words, this is the life of Jesus. This is the vision that God has for us in Christ to be people who would manifest, who would show the works of wisdom in our lives, people who would actually live into the acceptance of God. See, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he doesn't need the approval of his kinsmen because before that moment ever happens, do you recall this from the beginning of the gospel according to Mark? That before Jesus did a single thing, God speaks love and approval because Jesus works from his belovedness, not for his belovedness. And Jesus then invites us in to that reality of belovedness, that God in Christ says you are loved son, daughter, friend, that you are accepted. So we would be able to say that in Jesus, we are pure, no longer unclean. We are acceptable to God in Christ. And therefore we can move out of that space as peaceable, sowing peace. This moment needs the peace of Jesus. And God has chosen to work through his church.
This is the life of Jesus on display for us. This is our call to embody the works of wisdom. This is the call of faith to actually move towards the life of Jesus. And what I'm so encouraged by when I said my heart was strangely warmed by this is that when James is here writing, it just reminds me, it gives me a fresh vision that there is a life beyond the moments when we push Jesus away. Those moments where we passively and actively rebel. The moments where we're silent and the moments where we have to repent from our silence. Jesus actually draws us. His arms are wide open to any and all who would come to him by faith, who would just see wisdom in the face of Jesus and say, I believe, help my unbelief. He meets us right there, church. This is Jesus. And I think that Mark is trying to wake us up. I, I, I think that as I've, as I've come to this time and time again, I just don't know how to get my mind around it any other way, that to see Jesus marveling because of the unbelief of his kinsmen is to incite the fear of God in our hearts, to make us ask the question, where am I, un where's my unbelief? Am I, when I look and I hear Jesus, what, what comes up in my heart? What areas have I left untouched by the Spirit of God? Where, what am I hiding from him? What vision am I trying to cast over Jesus' life? These are the questions that emerge from this. These are the questions we must ask ourselves. Because the only sustaining reality is Jesus. Not the Jesus we create in our own image, but the true image of Jesus. The man who embodied the wisdom of God, who laid aside everything for our good. This is the gift we actually can give to this moment. The self-emptying gift of Jesus, the way of wisdom. And so may we, may we be a people that when Jesus looks at us, he doesn't marvel because of our unbelief, but he marvels because of our faith. And so let us, let us go today encouraged by the word of Jesus and emboldened to pursue him because his arms are wide open to receive us. Grace and peace to you.